episode 248, United, We Could Definitely Stand Against Rising Healthcare Costs. Today, I speak with Mark Bloom from America's Agenda. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Let's talk about rising healthcare costs for like T minus five seconds. Costs, by the way, that bear little, if any, correlation to the quality of care delivered or the outcomes that patients attain. Getting what you pay for and no less is a rallying cry. That rallying cry should unify pretty much everybody who is writing checks for healthcare services. That includes taxpayers, it includes employers, it includes patients. When I say taxpayers and patients, by the way, I also could mean unions. When healthcare costs too much and bosses resort to cost shifting, nobody wins. Businesses or public sectors with sick employees do not perform very well. Nor do businesses win when extraordinary healthcare costs push down wages and dollars disappear that were formerly used to innovate or reduce class sizes or any of a myriad of other things that money could be better spent on besides overly expensive healthcare. Today, I speak with Mark Bloom from America's Agenda. When I was talking with Mark, I kind of pictured him bearing a flag with a peace sign on it. His point for unions and employers alike is this. Instead of ripping each other into shreds at the bargaining table over healthcare, maybe work together proactively. Clip the reasons for rising healthcare costs in the first place. These reasons include, but certainly are not limited to, excess middleman profits that do not contribute to patient value, private equity earning profits on the backs of patients and payers, a healthcare system that rewards volume over value. I could go on and on. <laughs> But here's a way out of this tangled web we've been forced into. Instead of bowing and scraping at the boots of special interests driving up the costs of healthcare for Americans, and when I say Americans, I mean bosses or labor alike, instead of flailing at the mercy of these forces, change the game, gang up together and proactively demand to get what you pay for. Mark and I talk about two very concrete examples on how to do this. Mark and the team at America's Agenda for example, saved New Jersey $1.6 billion, that's billion with a B, dollars over the past three years on pharmacy benefits alone. That's a whole lot more shekel than could have been generated by haggling over who pays for what of a pharmacy bill that is $1.6 billion too high. We also talk about direct primary care and how much direct primary care, not owned by private equity, by the way, how much direct primary care can improve patient outcomes while at the same time reducing costs. Mark has some learnings here too. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Mark Bloom, welcome to Relentless Health Value. It's good to be with you, Stacey. Instead of employers and unions being on literally different sides of the table relative to healthcare, really, there should be a combined force around this contentious topic, obviously. Healthcare is not a unifying issue. If we assume that health costs must rise at a multiple of wages or employer revenues, all we can do then is fight over who bears the burden of those costs, fight over cost shifting. Employers typically will try to shift the rising costs of healthcare onto their employees. At one time, it was through raising health insurance premiums 
as well as co-pays. Today, the cost shift is largely in the form of rising deductibles. Deductibles have risen over the last five years at eight times the rate, eight times the rate of workers' wages, according to the uh, Kaiser Family Foundation. It's an incredible cost shift going on. What I am saying, however, is if employers and labor focus together on addressing, attacking the drivers of rising health costs, which lie in a fragmented and inefficient care delivery system in which incentives are not aligned, if we focus on those problems and solve them so that costs are not rising more rapidly than revenues and wages, then we create savings. We actually can bargain over how we share the savings we've created together rather than fighting acrimoniously over cost shifting. Most employers and most unions are locked into an eternal battle over cost shifting, and that is acrimonious. A few labor unions have led the way and brought employers along with them to address the underlying cost drivers. And we've succeeded in working with partnerships like that to reduce costs frequently by double-digit rates, flattening costs in the state of New Jersey. We actually reduced healthcare premiums after in the previous year, they were growing at over 14%. Historic turnarounds by reframing what collective bargaining is about. Yeah, it sounds like it's the difference between being proactive or reactive. And if you're being reactive, you're just taking what you get. If you're being proactive, you're working hard to really understand what the problem is and together ally against what could be, you know, in certain cases, and I hate to set it up in these terms, but a common foe. Let's talk about how you have done this recently, actually. In New Jersey, America's Agenda has worked with labor and employers to have a really a very meaningful reduction in PBM spend. Let's just kind of set the table here. Which unions were you working with in New Jersey, just to kind of start out here? We were working with a number of unions that together, we're talking about 750,000 lives. The unions that were there were NJEA, the New Jersey Education Association, the largest public sector union in the state, CWA, the Communication Workers of America, AFSCME, the Patrolmen's Benevolent Association, Firefighters, the American Federation of Teachers, and a number of other unions as well, the Teamsters among them and others. We worked with the unions that were represented on that committee and indeed also with the state side to find that common ground where instead of cutting benefits, which was initially the preference of the Christie administration, that we instead could tackle the cost problem by redesigning the care delivery system. We focused in this case on the rising cost of drugs, which were the fastest growing part of the state's drug spend. How much money did you wind up saving? I think we also have to put this in a broader context that a dollar spent on healthcare is a dollar that is not spent on something else, especially if you're talking about a state budget. You're exactly right. A dollar spent on healthcare is a dollar not spent on education, not spent on infrastructure. Our thesis when we became engaged was we can tackle this problem by looking at the inefficiencies in the care delivery system. So ultimately, the end result of the policies that we recommended led to a projected $1.6 billion savings to the state over a three-year PBM contract that amounted to over 18.5%. And as a result of that, healthcare premiums fell for the first time in, in modern memory for state employees rather than growing at double digits. And so obviously taxpayers win, employees win, maybe the benefits are are actually better. It's kind of one of these win-wins all around when people work together as opposed to fighting like cats and dogs and finger pointing. That's my takeaway. That's exactly correct. 
You deployed a strategy which you called a reverse auction relative to finding the next PBM pharmacy benefit manager to serve these, I think you said, 750,000 lives that you just mentioned, correct? That's that's correct. 750,000 lives and about a $2 billion a year spend by the state. You use the term reverse auction. What is the concept of a reverse auction? What is it? Think eBay. That's an online auction where buyers bid against each other, driving up the price for a product that each of them wants to buy. Think of a reverse auction as simply the opposite process. You've got a purchaser who says, I want to buy something, in this case, a pharmacy benefits plan, and invites suppliers to bid against each other to sell me the product. They're each one trying to lower their bids until I'm willing to purchase from them. Through successive rounds of bidding, each seller has an incentive to go as low as necessary to be awarded the contract. That's the reverse auction. Putting us in the context of pharmacy benefit management, everybody knows that pharmacy benefit management, the contracts are voluminous. They're incredibly complicated. What did the bid document look like or how did you prevent what is very common in pharmacy benefit management kind of, you know, in the landscape is they'll drop their price in one area. It's like squeezing a balloon. You know, they'll drop their price in one area, but then raise it somewhere else. And you only figure that out after the fact, if you ever figure it out. How did you make it so that you definitely knew you were comparing apples to apples. I think I could explain that by first saying that you explained it very well. It's a perfect storm for arbitrage. Each PBM is coming saying, this is the price I'll give you, and also bringing their own product. The health plans themselves are different. The purchaser is trying to choose between different products, between an apple, an orange, and a lemon, with a price or an ultimate cost they don't know. And in fact, the price is going to be changing constantly throughout the life of the contract. So this was our theory. Let's homogenize. Let's compare apples to apples to apples. How do we do it? Two things. First, instead of accepting PBM contracts, let's let the purchaser design a best-in-class contract. The best-in-class contract, which defines the payment system to the PBM, defines definitions of drug classes, defines the algorithms by which the prices of each drug are going to be determined, really closes all the latitude that PBMs have for creating their own income streams in the transaction. The best-in-class contract for the purchaser, one product, not an apple, an orange, a banana, but one apple. And comparing the price of those apples is the idea. Bring that to the marketplace, invite PBMs to come and bid on the best-in-class contract the state has offered, and then recalculate using their own big data analytics platform what the cost of each PBM bid is going to be. Even though they're bidding on the same contract, Their pricing schemes are actually still very different. They're very complex algorithms, and each PBM comes with a different, a unique pricing algorithm or pricing system to respond to a given set of contract terms. But for each one, if we can project out using a common algorithm, the respective costs of each of those bids, and then make them transparent like eBay, where the PBM sees its own costs and also can see the best offers of its competitors, then we run a round of bidding, they see where they stand and where we project the cost of their competitors, we close down that round of bidding, give the PBMs a couple of weeks to play with their price proposals, their very complex proposals, to actually model them on a platform, and then reopen bidding and say, okay, PBMs, place your bids again. 
Watch them game each other through multiple rounds of bidding, each one trying to either scare competitors out of the marketplace or to underbid their competitors through progressive rounds of bidding. At the end of the day, our theory is we don't have to outsmart PBMs. Let's engage them in trying to outsmart each other in a truly transparent, competitive market environment. Our theory was that that would drive costs down to consumers, down to the state. And at the end of the day, our theory proved true. Yeah, $1.6 billion true, I guess. It sounds like what you were able to master through this reverse auction exercise is the quintessential and age-old issue of, in air quotes, asymmetrical knowledge, where, you know, in a typical PBM negotiation, you've got, as you said, the pharmacy benefit manager, who is giant, you know, a titan of the industry, who has all of this big data, whose job is it to, you know, forecast these trends, like that is their day job. And they are negotiating with a much smaller entity, typically, or at a minimum, even if the entity is pretty big, it certainly doesn't have as much insight or clarity around the PBM's industry as the PBM, who they have an obligation to their shareholders to improve their revenues. So obviously, they're quite good at it. What my main takeaway is from what you just said, Mark, is that what you figured out how to do is to to make the knowledge more symmetrical. That's brilliantly said. I've never heard it expressed more precisely. That idea of the playing field was tilted against the consumer because they didn't have the insights, the knowledge, or the technical tools. We don't have the technical tools in America's agenda, certainly. We had a theory of how we could create a dynamic marketplace by balancing the playing field ending by having a symmetrical knowledge relationship. But the purchaser needed to deploy big data analytic tools with deep pharmacy knowledge that could, in fact, balance with the PBM. Then the purchaser had to define what they wanted to purchase. And then you know what? The meaning of transparency is really transformed. Typically, in the consultant approach, uh, where we try to out-negotiate or outsmart the PBM. Transparency means I want to understand your entire business model, your cost functions, where the PBM is making money, identify where, in their words, you might be scamming or inflating or diverting revenues. Our model, what we need to know is actually much simpler. When I buy a car, I don't need to know the costs of the supply chain that leads to the final car. I need to know what I want to buy, its qualities, and I need to know the comparative prices of what I want to buy. And that will drive value to me as a purchaser. In the pharmacy space, transparency we need is not transparency of all the way PBMs make money. No, I don't need to know that. I need to know what the cost to me is going to be of their bid on what I want to buy. What is really exciting about a well-functioning marketplace, you don't need transparency to voluminous information. If you got it, you might not understand it anyway. What you need to know is what you want to buy. You need folks bidding on the same service or the same product. And you need to know the cost to you as a purchaser of what their various bids are. That's what we created. And suddenly, we, we unleashed a powerful dynamic process that drove the price down nearly 20%. The PBMs that were contenders in the reverse auction process, was it mainly the three big ones or did you have some of the other entities who are, you know, maybe smaller and more agile also bidding? For your listeners, the big three you're, you're referring to, Express Scripts, OptumRx, and CVS Caremark, that dominate the overwhelming majority of the American PBM market. Those were the big three that were selected. Many more applied to participate. The state had a selection committee, and that selection committee opted to approve only those three in the first reverse auction. 
You should know, though, that a second reverse auction was undertaken this past year for the same employee group. And there were new competitors added and savings have not been publicly reported from the process. We would project that we should see in real dollar terms the same rate of annual savings moving forward as in the first three years, which were a little north of half a billion dollars per year savings to state taxpayers. We think that that rate of savings is likely to to carry forward through the second reverse auction. But there is no reason other PBMs couldn't participate in a reverse auction like this. And in fact, a number of non-Big 3 PBMs are participating in similar reverse auctions, especially in the private sector. And I was just going to ask you that, is this something that like if New Jersey can do it, any state can do it? Or was there something that was particularly unique going on in New Jersey, which facilitated this innovation, which, which, you know, may not be a perfect storm available elsewhere? It's interesting you ask that because what was going on in New Jersey that facilitated this perfect storm is going on in virtually every state in the union. Senior administrators and elected officials in states ranging from Montana to the West Coast states have been in direct contact to discuss developments in New Jersey with America's agenda. In New Hampshire, a movement, a grassroots movement, which stretches from folks on the conservative Republican right wing to labor in the Democratic Party across that whole spectrum and and progressives uh, have come together calling for a series of policy shifts, including adoption of the New Jersey-style PBM selection process. So I think it's only a matter of time before we see implementation of similar approaches in states across the country. It is the single most successful and fastest means of quickly bringing down drug prices to consumers It sounds like something that it's a unique opportunity to bring together labor and unions with employers and handshakes across the aisle. The the big obstacle to doing this, Stacey, is that the PBM industry is remarkably profitable. If you just look at share values of PBMs on the major stock exchanges and compare them to other stakeholders in healthcare, astronomical rates of growth in in share value relative to others. There is so much money swooshing around from arbitrage in the supply chain, which is run by PBMs, that they have a lot of money to pass through in the form of unexpected discounts. I, I should tell you, in New Jersey, the incumbent, when the discussion began to get traction about implementing a reverse auction type strategy, stepped forward and found $20 million in discounts. Their most recent analysis they hadn't seen before. When the state treasurer finally opted to bypass that, thinking that the savings the state might be higher, they found $60 million over two years. Miraculous. And the state was greatly tempted to accept that windfall but finally held its own, especially with legislative pressure from the unions uh, and from uh, the Senate leadership, the state Senate leadership, who, who understood that that was, in fact, lobbying money compared to the savings that they could extract uh, from a dynamically competitive PPM marketplace. And indeed, their bet paid off. Yeah, I mean, the difference between $80 million and $1.6 billion is, let's just say, not trivial. <laughs> I interviewed Vinay Patel, episode 241, and he said very similar that it's a very common tactic amongst PBMs. First line maneuver is if competition starts heating up or the customer starts to imply that they're going to open things up for bid, they 
will immediately come back with some, in quote, savings, which when compared to what could be had is generally speaking, turns out to be a very small percentage of the money that's actually on the table. Patel is absolutely right on. You're right on. We don't vilify PBMs. They are rational economic actors exploiting their position to maximize profits in a fundamentally uncompetitive marketplace because consumers don't know the cost of what they're buying. We shed light on the most important transparent fact, what the cost actually is to the purchaser. And once you shed light on that cost, you unleash this competitive dynamic that drives down price. PBMs don't want to see that change because they are rationally optimizing, maximizing their profits as arbiters in the middle of a marketplace where consumers and suppliers of prescription medicines don't understand, don't communicate directly with each other. The state has no transactions with the actual manufacturers of drugs. Their transactions are exclusively with PBMs, and they don't know the cost of what they're buying. So in that kind of case, it makes perfect sense for that rational actor to say, I will give up part of my incredible rate of profit in order to preserve a high rate of profit. And that's typically what what we see them doing. Nothing necessarily illegal or wrong about that. It's it's what you'd expect in a market that isn't working. We just made the market work. You know, another thing that I talked about with Vinay Patel, the title of the episode was actually putting the squeeze on pharmacies. How do you ensure in New Jersey that by reducing the costs that are being paid to PBMs, that the pharmacies who are kind of the tail and the dog here don't get wagged into oblivion because it is, in fact, the PBMs that are paying the pharmacies and to a large degree have the power to determine how much those pharmacies get paid. If we reduce profits from savings that PBMs divert to their own bank accounts, if we succeed in doing that, what stops them from reducing reimbursements to community pharmacies. It's a real problem. We all love our community pharmacists. How do we protect them? One answer to that is in that best-in-term contract that I talked to you about, best-in-class terms can build in requirements that PBMs may not spread price, that the PBM can't claw back its profits. You can make the technical practices by which PBMs do that in violation of the contract. Pharmacists weren't at the table when the state of New Jersey developed its best-in-class contract. Public employees in the state were. But if independent pharmacists or community pharmacists were at the table saying, we need to stop spread pricing as well so that we're not the victims of your success in reducing prices, but we actually share in the benefits of that outcome, that can be done in a reverse auction process. Whose voice is at the table? It's the old political question when you're designing your solution is really important. I just want to suggest what you want to do is develop a coherent strategy, which has all the stakeholders at the table designing together as purchasers, and indeed, if you want, as community pharmacists, to design a best-in-class contract, which prevents exploitation of pharmacists, as well as best pricing. Take that contract to the marketplace and then invite PBMs to bid. The larger the group of purchasers you pull together, volume really matters. Size matters in uh, prescription drug purchasing. The larger group you bring with This kind of a new business model for selecting your PBM service provider, the more savings that you bring to all of the purchasing group together. So community pharmacists, other organizations, it's conceivable, for example, that we could have not only teachers, state and government workers, but one could see this model applied to Medicaid, for example, to Medicaid drug purchasing. There are some exceptions within Medicaid, but 
generally to the to Medicaid purchasing of uh, exempting 340B uh, federally regulated drug prices, but the kind of market-based pricing could be applied to it. It could be applied to large private sector funds. And if you had private and public partnerships going into a reverse auction strategy together, indeed, public employees, Medicaid, maybe other kinds of uh, health plan purchasing, uh, perhaps a public option plan, as some states are looking at, all brought together into a common reverse auction, the savings are potentially much larger than was achieved even in New Jersey. It's definitely a big tent. And as they say, Mark, if you don't have a seat at the table, consider yourself on the menu. Perfect. (laughs) So let's um, pivot. And we don't have a ton of time left, but I definitely want to mention a second initiative, which I know is close to your heart. And that is your work also in New Jersey with direct primary care. I know a lot of our listeners are pretty familiar with direct primary care, but do you want to just talk a little bit about what you did? Let's just start there. The richest source of savings in the current delivery system is, in fact, in transformation of primary care. So we went at it in ways that are probably familiar to many of your listeners. We recognize that fee-for-service is a perverse incentive in primary care. We want not a volume of billable services to be maximized. We want health outcomes to be maximized. We eliminated from the design of the model fee-for-service reimbursement for doctors and providers. We wanted to align incentives between patients and providers and indeed the public health plans. So we wanted to tear down barriers to access. We wanted to use more primary care, not less, because primary care is the most cost-efficient platform for offering high-quality management of chronic illness over time and prevention of chronic disease over time. And that, after all, is where 80 cents out of every dollar are spent, typically Primary care is treated and managed when people are already sick, when that advanced condition could have been avoidable, and they're treated in hospital and special settings where the treatment is most expensive. So by building a robust primary care system, uh, we held that we could properly incented, aligning the incentives of the state to have savings, rewarding doctors based on outcomes, and uh, tearing down barriers to accessing primary care, no cost sharing whatsoever, no copays, no deductibles. Primary care access has no out-of-pocket costs at all uh, to public employees in the New Jersey pilot program. Our theory was that that would actually reduce overall costs from 5 to 20% initially. And as we use the primary care platform to refer patients to high-value downstream specialists and hospital providers, and in fact, to re-engineer the way that the business models for providing that kind of care, that 30 to 40% savings could be possible. So that was the the nexus of the direct primary care medical home project that was championed by the, the public employee unions. But I want to say to you, Stacey, that the biggest innovation in this whole model has been more recent than what we did in New Jersey. The biggest innovation has been in labor direct ownership of direct primary care. Representatives of the purchasers making that balance rather than representatives of venture capital investors. The Solidaritas Health is was just featured this summer on the cover of, of Modern Healthcare magazine. And the cover talked about the really innovative model of direct primary care, how it was saving jobs and lowering costs. But the most important innovation, according to the article, and I think it's exactly correct, the most important innovation is labor ownership of the model, because that means over the long run, 
that innovation can continue to drive savings. And that hasn't happened historically. It's interesting that you say that because as has been written and studied and more often than not proven, physician-led healthcare organizations, healthcare provider organizations tend to deliver much greater value than organizations who are led by other individuals, groups, equities, etc. And what you're saying here is that, okay, what about patient-owned facilities. I agree with you. It, it is innovative, and it's a wonder that that hasn't been conceived of in the past in a way. Who benefits more from the physician-patient relationship than the patient? Absolutely. But ultimately, I don't, I don't want to juxtapose the interests of, of physicians and, and patients. The real secret sauce here is to align the interests of patients and providers, physicians, so that doctors do very well by producing better health outcomes from patient populations for which they're accountable. And patients do very well. They're healthier. And in fact, because they're less expensive to keep healthy, everybody wins in that. That is a long-run alignment. That alignment can go forever. The issue is the value that you create who gets it. It comes back and is shared between the provider and the patient. Win-win. If the value has to go to shareholders because that's why it was created, that's not win-win over the long run. So this innovation, we think, is really important, really important. Effectively, how that was created is, or, or what this looks like on the ground, is, is you created direct primary care clinics, and those were funded by unions and then the physician participants. Is that how that kind of went down? Uh, yeah, very broad basically. Joke after the ACA passed, because of the peculiar politics, it essentially was an increase in insurance coverage, very significant, millions of Americans getting insurance coverage that were denied it or ineligible for it in the past. That's We all applaud that. that that's a great advance. But there was no coherent strategy to bring down the costs of care delivery in the way we've been discussing today. And that is the big crisis in American healthcare. It costs too much. Costs are rising so much more rapidly than wages. Or the, the economy is moving from 20% of all spending being on healthcare towards 40% before the middle of this century. That's harrowing. And you're right, Stacey, that means less money for everything else. In the face of, of that, America's agenda, that, our mission was to address that problem. After the ACA passed, we didn't think more federal policy was going to come to tackle the issue of lowering costs, for which there was no coherent strategy in the ACA. So we began to look at the private sector marketplace and look at the most promising innovations and to review them, to evaluate them, and then to apply the principles. And America's Agenda went on to articulate the principles of high-value primary care transformation for self-funded plans, generally jointly governed plans, employer and union jointly governed plans. We articulate those principles. We applied them as beta tests in markets around the country. In the packing house industry, we drove down to the largest uh, meat packing company in the, in the country, uh, costs in several pilots by more than 10% per annum. We began to uh, pilot with various venture-backed partners in different parts of the country to beta test the theory to learn from them also. And ultimately, we began to witness that as more value is being created by these innovations, it wasn't being passed on ultimately to the purchasers. In the beginning, yes, but almost systematically in the beginning, yes, great healthcare experience is sticky. As soon as your employees or your members don't want to leave the healthcare they've got, you lose your bargaining leverage with the provider. If the provider is trying to maximize its income, pretty soon it doesn't become a good deal anymore. They know you can't leave. 
and they began to jack up the prices. So we began to think, how can we have long-run alignment between our employers and our members who are actually paying the bills and the provider? The idea is that we need to own it. We need to be balancing returns to the company and returns to ourselves, essentially. And so it was out of that that the idea was born for this kind of a, a design. Solidaritas Health was founded, applying the principles that had been, been really determined in our think tank, America's Agenda, applying them and putting them out into the marketplace as a market product, and then inviting unions to step forward in financing it. We turned down venture capital. There were many, many offers, but that would have been the antithesis of where we wanted to go. We wanted to go towards patient and payer-owned healthcare. And Solidaritas Health in a remarkably short time has saved jobs and produced remarkable savings. And that, of course, was the, the subject of that Modern Healthcare uh, cover article. That pre-anticipates my next question here, Mark. If someone is interested in learning more about the direct primary care organization that you started, Solidaritas Health, or more about the reverse auction work that you did, or any of the other work that America's Agenda has done in the past, would you recommend going, is there americasagenda.com or .org? Look at uh, americasagenda.org. If you're interested specifically in Solidaritas Health, the Solidaritas website is solidaritas.net. Mark Bloom, thank you so much for being on the Relentless Health Value Podcast today. It's a pleasure being with you. Thanks, Stacey. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at relentlesshealthvalue.com. If you visit the website, relentlesshealthvalue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.